0: Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change. Your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Picola. well hello i'm thomas doherty and i am and welcome to climate change and happiness our podcast this is a show for people around the world who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and other environmental problems and this is our mission on the podcast as we've been recording here for the last few years is just making a place for people to think and feel uh in this in these times and we are really happy to have a guest who is also quite specialized in helping people to think and feel.
1: My name is Matthew Schneider-Meyerson. Uh, I'm an associate professor of, of English at Colby College, uh, and my work touches on sort of the cultural and social and political dynamics of climate change, with a focus on literature and climate justice.
0: Yeah, and we're we're so uh, so glad to have Matthew on here. As we were telling him when we got the podcast, this podcast started. Matthew's work was one of our inspirations. Panu and I are both, um, I was a former English major in a previous life and Panu's also studied literature. So Matthew's work is really special for us. And, uh, Matthew's associated with a, a kind of a lexicon of novel, uh, words regarding modern feelings and sensations. And that's how, how I learned of him. And we'll talk a bit about that. Um, um, uh, Pano, do you want to get us started today?
2: Warmly welcome, Matthew. Also on my part, very very good to see you, see you again. And I came to know of your work from three sources. There was Thomas introducing the ecotopian lexicon. Then through Brit Race, Generation Dread newsletter and some academic research on climate-related emotions and attitudes. Uh, There's your contributions to reproduction decisions around climate climate change. And let's return to that at one point. And then thirdly, at cooperation with Finnish literature scholars like Toni Lahtinen, who happen to know, know you also as a pioneer in research about the actual effects of reading texts which deal with environmental issues. That's called empirical mm-hmm. eco-criticism. So, so there's a lot of strands coming, coming together, together here. But uh, would you like to start by saying something about your own part? How did you end up becoming so interested and specialized in texts and ecological emotions and stuff?
1: Sure, yeah. And I should say thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be on the show. Yeah. Um, I think I, like a lot of people in environmental research and and I suppose activism and endeavors today, I sort of had a kind of circuitous path. Um, You know, I think my commitments were really around uh, activism, around social justice issues. And so I sort of got started when I was uh, in college and in university, um, sort of doing anti-sweatshop activism and then sort of doing sort of... uh, what was known then as the anti-globalization movement so the big anti-globalization protests such as the battle in seattle in 1999 and continuing for a few years uh, and then i think as i as sort of time went on i started reading more about energy um, and so i sort of became aware of this thing called the peak oil movement uh, which was kind of a big phenomenon in the u.s as oil prices were rising in the mid-2000s um, and then sort of through thinking about energy i started reading more and more about climate change. And so one of the big sort of, I suppose, moments in my life was reading uh, Elizabeth Colbert's book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe. And I think I was reading the the different versions that were serialized in The New Yorker in the mid 2000s. Um, actually, one of them, ironically, in the in the waiting room of a therapist I was seeing. <laughs> and I, uh, I sometimes tell this story as a kind of origin story and perhaps a story about the importance of thinking through climate emotions. I think I was reading this New Yorker piece by Elizabeth Colbert telling my therapist that I was uh, concerned about climate change, and you know she said uh, very typically, "Well, tell me about your parents." Um, you know, sort of immediately assuming that I was kind of displacing my concerns about my own personal biography, uh, you know, onto onto the climate, which is perhaps something we we'll talk about later. Uh, but I think I realized quickly as somebody that was deeply concerned about social justice that all of the things I was committed to um racial justice economic justice uh lgbtq plus rights um we're we're going to be swept away if we didn't take action on climate change i think you know this is sort of one of the great delusions of the of the 20th century is sort of thinking that the environment doesn't matter and that we kind of mastered nature and that we could sort of move on from that aspect of things um, and so i started reading more and more about climate people like elizabeth colbert bill mckibben um tim flannery I think was important for me at that time. And I was starting a PhD in American Studies at the University of Minnesota. And I had sort of gone into that program thinking that I would really focus on culture. And I'm a big music person. So I think when I wrote my statement for graduate school, I wanted to write a biography of Slystone <laughs> in the style of Robert Caro. Um, so I wanted to write sort of about like racial politics and music in the late 1960s U.S., um, but I was learning more and more about climate change and energy, and I thought this is really something I need to be committed to, both personally and um, and um, intellectually uh, in my academic work. And I think a lot of my advisors didn't really know what I was talking about. They kept on asking me to sort of stop using terms like anthropogenic because nobody would know what they uh-huh. meant. You uh-huh. know, the terms like environmental humanities didn't exist at that time. This would have been the you know early early 2010s. Um, and so I started writing a dissertation about the peak oil movement and, and energy and sort of apocalyptic fears and projections. Um, and then my work has really sort of moved in a lot of different directions. So, um, you know, I've, I've done some kind of more creative projects like the ecotopian lexicon. I've sort of done empirical work uh, like empirical eco criticism and, and research on reproduction. Being trained in American studies, I sort of have a, a somewhat unique or, or rare Ability to to do both sort of the humanities side of things with an attention to literature and culture, but also to do some some sociological research. I was lucky to study with some some really great sociologists of environmental justice in grad school, um, and so and then I did a postdoc at Rice University. Um, it was a center for energy and environmental research in the human sciences there, and I think working at Rice and sort of being exposed to the, t- the different ways that people were doing both sort of rigorous empirical work, but also really creative artistic explorations was probably pretty meaningful to me. Mm. Um, so that's, the, I guess that's the, that's the origin story. And I don't want to take up too much time telling it
0: That's beautiful. Now I, uh, the origin story is important and listeners, we all have our stories and some people are just, you know, right in the middle of their origin story, even as they're listening to episodes like this. And so, uh, but I, you know, panel can weigh in, but I know it, it, it just, it, it really dovetails with my experience, uh, somewhat earlier in the calendar, but, but still the idea of bringing in words like anthropocentric, which is, you know, human centered, bringing consciousness of there's, there's actually an option other than human centered into any subject like psychology or therapy is a new thing for people. And so that's still something that's still breaking across our culture so this is in 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 literature i could totally totally see that as well a couple of directions to go matthew but um i'm just curious about your experience i like the lexicon book that you created because it's just so wide-ranging and it brought you must have brought you or obviously brought you into connection with so many different people also all, all around the world um in different cultures different languages So there's words in there that are existing words in various languages and also newly created words um, and also art uh, and and imagery and things like that. You know, one of the words I like in there is uh, hyper empathy, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is a classic, classic word that comes out of literature. Um, But I use that a lot with clients when I'm when I'm working with them because we sometimes feel empathy is the ability to feel other other people's feelings and things like that but this hyper empathy that hyper prefix right it's like wow everything's so sped up and I could feel so many things at the same time and because of news and communication I feel like I'm feeling all things of the world and even feelings of other species right I'm just curious what you what, what kind of words or just any any recollections or, or experiences from that whole project what I'm just curious how that hit you
1: yeah. So it's a, it's a book of um, sort of 30 terms that should exist but don't to sort of help us deal with this moment in time and sort of not just the sort of political aspects of it, although we touch on that, but also the psychological, and emotional and, and cultural aspects. And so as you were suggesting, the terms kind of come from three different places. They come from um, other languages, non-English languages. They come from speculative fiction and they also come from uh, activist subcultures and sort of these various ways in which um, words can emerge. I think the the book kind of came from noticing that a lot of the stories we were telling were apocalyptic ones. And that's true whether they're, we're thinking about something like news media or we're thinking about literature or film, sort of more popular cultural narratives, and sort of noticing that those were not necessarily the most helpful things, that we do need to be telling the truth telling things like they are, but we also need to be imagining better futures and sort of thinking beyond the very limited kind of Anglo-American conceptual lexicon that currently exists um, and which lots of people have you know, critiqued as problematic um, sort of fundamental terms like environment, terms like nature, terms like wilderness, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so it was a pretty fun project in terms of thinking of like, okay, what are the other conceptual terms that can help us make sense of and actually respond to this moment, perhaps even live good lives and and thrive um, in this moment. And so we reached out to some folks. We put out a call for papers, as is typical with with academic publications like this. Um, and we got a really wide range of responses. Some of which were things we really did not expect. You know, one of the terms is is a sort of. Um, uh, a term for the way that dolphins buzz each other mm-hmm. underwater, and sort of helps us think about the way that we communicate with each other in nonverbal ways. You know, the way that I can type an emoji and then it can sort of buzz your phone and make you laugh, and there's never actually a word spoken in that whole interchange. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of my favorite terms from the book is is the term shale. Uh, it's it's uh, spelled I L D S J E L. So I think it's a, as I recall, it's a Norwegian term, um, but it's a term just, it means um, fire souls um, and sort of the the kind of people that make things happen mm. in a community, right? The kind of people that uh, take action and organize people and, and bring folks together. And it's a term that I really like because I think it speaks to the sort of nonlinear potential of change, right? The way that change um, and ideas and desires can actually spread like a conflagration, right? Can spread like a fire, that um, and that there are people that can sort of play a central role in, in making this happen. And so, mm. sometimes when I assign this to my classes, I sort of you know try to think
0: about get, getting students to think about themselves as uh, as ill sheller. It's mm. beautiful. I'm going to steal that uh, word and put it in my manuscript. There, uh, yeah, I bet your classes are fun. So. Pani, what are you thinking about over there? I'm sure you've got a lot of
2: percolating thoughts. Mm, yeah, definitely. So, Tuli so, Sielu is the Finnish version of eld uh, shale. We study Swedish in, in Finland, so we understand some Norwegian and Danish on, on that ba- basis. But I think it originates uh, from outside Finnish borders, but we have our own equ- equivalent of it. And Uh, In many previous episodes we have talked about this also, also the importance of uh, looking at things from the perspective of various languages and the creativity in in coining these words. And in, in many ways the sort of openness to ambiguity and contradiction and the Coexistence of various kinds of things at the same time. So, that's something I take also from the ecotopian lexi- lexicon and also from many parts of your re- research this openness uh, to many kinds of de- uh, developments happening and many kinds of ev- events. And that's, of course, psychologically also very sen- central, as Thomas, for example, has been writing and, and saying, and closely re- related to this discussion around dystopia those sort of bad kind of futures and utopia good kind of futures That what might be futures where we see potentialities uh, and trajectories for both those kinds of things so that it's not it's not bi- bi- binary but this might lead us uh to the impact of texts such as the ecotopian lexicon for example and this is something which you have studied in 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 many many ways so what are some of your key thoughts about how how can various texts impact people i know this is a terribly broad question but just to get us started on the topic
1: yeah it's a great question i was just teaching a class on uh what I called creative environmental communication, which is kind of another way of saying environmental media effects, sort of the way that, that narratives, both sort of explicitly environmental narratives from film, from literature, from theater, from even, you know, shareable videos like TikTok or, or Instagram reels, the way that these uh, sort of shape the way that we think about the environment or perhaps don't think about the environment and don't, don't act on it. Um, and so this has been kind of a fascination of mine. You know, I'm a, I'm a sort of student of of literature. I love literature, and you know, I sort of was a, closely observing when climate fiction kind of became a phenomenon back in 2013 or so, when people were sort of talking about how there was this new kind of literature that might quote unquote save the world. Um, and uh, you know, I sort of noticed that there was a lot of of hype around the potential literature to spread awareness, to change people's minds, to model behavior. But not a lot of investigation of how that would actually happen and whether that would actually happen. Um, and to some extent, that's because it's mostly humanists that study literature. Humanists tend not to be the ones to do kind of empirical studies of literary reception. Um, so I was kind of nicely positioned to be able to do some of that research. And so I've been doing research on what I call empirical eco-criticism. Um, sort of how do these how do these novels or films actually change people's minds? Um, and you know, I think it, it can be a little bit humbling, for, depending on sort of where you sit. If you're, a, if you're an author or a student of literature and you sort of, you know, want to, want to believe that one novel might, might change the world and, you know, lead to the sort of climate revolution, um, th- some of the work that we've done might be a little bit um, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it turns out that most, most narratives tend to change people's minds very little. Um, you know, we tend to sort of um, interpret things that we come into contact with based on our pre-existing frames. Um, but also, you know, I think it's also just tells us that what we what we need is not just sort of a silver bullet novel, but actually sort of a flood of a flood of narratives uh, in all mm-hmm. forms, whether that's literature, whether that's film, whether that's theater, um, whether that's TV shows, right? Um so, one of the things that I've been sort of doing more and more research on is is um, sort of what people call cultivation. Um, And that's kind of the ways in which uh, sort of common features of narratives that people regularly consume tend to have a big impact on them. Um, And some of the classic work in in cultivation um, comes from violence on television, for example. And so people Mm -hmm. have found that, you know, in the real world, 1% of people are either perpetrators or victims of, of violent crime. But on TV, it's something like 50%. Um, mm. And so if you watch a lot of TV, people who watch more and more TV um, tend to believe that violence is incredibly prevalent, um, and of course then believe that they need to protect themselves from it and need to vote for sort of law and order candidates, that kind of thing. It's called the mean world um, hypothesis. And I think we can come up with any similar number of sort of hypotheses about um, you know popular media today, um, whether it's the kind of actions that are common. Um, you know, flying on planes, uh, eating beef, um, any of the sort of things that have the biggest impact on um, individual carbon footprints. Um, But also it's just sort of a general um, feeling that nature doesn't matter, right? Um, And that the world is fundamentally human-centered and that sort of nature is a kind of mute and um, reliable backdrop for human affairs. Um, And so this is something that I've been thinking a lot about and sort of just how how pernicious this is um, on us, on the stories we tell. Sometimes I ask students when they're sort of dubious about whether these kinds of narratives matter, right? If you're sort of doing a close reading of a novel, it's easy to say, okay, this is just one novel. Like, how, how much can this possibly matter? I'll ask them to um, sort of write down every single narrative that they're exposed to for a week. Mm. And of course, that can be something like a pop song, right, that you sort of are exposed to as you're walking by a... Uh, a mall or something, and um, that can be an, an ad that you're exposed to as you're watching a YouTube video, as well as the YouTube video itself. Right, that can be a story that a friend is taking, mm-hmm. and after a few days, they usually stop writing it down because it be- becomes a kind of sort of ridiculous enterprise. Just because mm-hmm. it's so pervasive, we sort of swim in this ecology of narratives um, in which there are all these common features, um, and something that I think about it, it of course, points the way towards the need for a very sort of fundamental shift in the kind of narratives that we're exposed to. Um, And that, that of course, is a shift that requires not just storytellers, but also the kind of um, uh, infrastructure that supports them, the publishing industries, the music executives, right? And of course, part of the problem is that they're subject to the dictates of capitalism. They need to make money and they need to tell stories that fit into existing cultural grooves. Um, So it's just sort of pointing towards the need for a broader cultural shift, right? One that goes beyond simply policy or even politics, but also includes uh, includes culture.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, great stuff. So just listeners, you're following along here, you know, empirical means simply we actually study it with hard data, like either through numbers or through actually, re, you know, doing focus groups and not just our ideas. And so as an English major, I know in the past, a lot of that English major type work is just done about, Oh, this is my idea and I'm going to write it and make it sound beautiful. But empirical means I actually have to test it. So Matthew's been testing this stuff out. Um, and I think Matthew, yeah, the one of the concepts we talk about is environmental identity and how that's formed. And this is all, I mean, you're just doing such a great job talking about your own environmental identity and how even your work on sweatshops comes back around, right. To your work on narratives and writers and, and stuff like that. But um, I think, um, I think it's true, and that's a great insight. Also for listeners that we don't, we assimilate most everything. Like we have a worldview, and actually, books don't change people. People choose books that fit their worldview, and we go we go after books that already fit into our mind, um, which is fine because we're creating our own self and our own identity. But every once in a while, I know when I look back, and that's why college and different things are important. We will read things that blow our mind open, you know, that suddenly, wow, it's, it kind of snuck into our mind. We didn't realize it. So I think that's what's happening, you know, with people, the stuff is sneaking into our mind, <laughs> our mind, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. Um, but Matthew, earlier you talked about uh, in our pre-talk, we talked, we talked about rituals. And I think that's a good direction to go for the rest of the episode, because that could go in a lot of directions, but you know, the idea of rituals, I know when I hear that, I mean, I, it sounds like, you know, oh, I'm going to be really conscious of what we're doing and we're going to, we're going to have a ritual to, so things don't get buried and ignored. We're going to make a ritual about the end of the year or graduating from college or, I mean, obviously there are some places that already have prebuilt rituals, but the stuff we're talking about with the eco grief and loss and doesn't have a prebuilt ritual, right? I mean, Panu knows this well too. So maybe you can talk a bit about rituals and I know both you, both Panu and Uh, Matthew, you can weigh in on that.
1: Yeah, I could start. Um, You know, I've taught um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, a bunch of times now in one of my introductory classes. And one of my favorite parts of the book is is when she talks about ritual and sort of how common um, and important ritual is in a lot of indigenous cultures. And, And the way she puts it is that sort of ritual is the way we remember to remember. And also do so in a in a collective fashion, in a sort of communal fashion, in the way that a lot of the rituals that are sort of now become most important uh, in at Western cultures today, at least, are really individualistic sort of celebrations of achievement. Right, they're they're the high school graduation, college graduation, they're the they're the birthday. Um, you know, you do have anniversaries, which are sort of collective, but they tend to be focused on sort of a you know heterosexual uh, couple. And just that we have very, very we have very few rituals, um, at least in the U.S. and the cultures that I've been part of, for sort of affirming the value of the non-human world, um, and let alone sort of doing so as a group. Um, and I think about this just because I've been, you know, I've been an activist for a lot of my life, and I've often found myself sort of, you know, happiest when I'm part of a, a campaign, um, when I'm sort of working with other people towards something collective. And I've also, you know, as a lot of academics have, I've I've moved a lot. Uh, I moved to Houston for a postdoc. I moved to Singapore for seven years to work there. And then I moved back to the United States recently for another job. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sort of affirming the importance of environmental values and actions and behaviors and engagement all alone becomes really hard. Like, you know, as anyone can tell you, whether it's someone who's, participated in Alcoholics Anonymous or or tried to you know lose weight alone. It's a lot easier when you do something in community and it's also tends to be a lot more fun and it tends to stick a lot better. So I teach a class on ecotopian visions uh, every year for the last five years or so um, and uh, one of the things I've always wanted to do is sort of create create a class project where we sort of develop a, a nature ritual for the institution, for the community of students and staff and faculty, just because I think this is so important. And I think ultimately sort of getting to um, achieving anything like real sustainability is going to require ritual and sort of community and all these things which we're really missing. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Pono.
2: Yeah, that's very, very fascinating and in many ways close to the things I've been working with. uh, Also my own Strange parts has included study and practice of rit- ritual in the past, and there's of course functions for the community with ritual. It helps the community to deal with certain issues, but there's also functions for the individual. And often there's an interplay between these two two dimensions and it can be profoundly important for individuals or, you know, small units of people to get recognition from the larger group via ritual, for, for example. Mm. I'm thinking of Sarah Pike, for example, a scholar of religion who studied uh, what she saw as elements of ritual in radical environmental activism in Northern America, for example. So sometimes it may be that it's not an explicitly pronounced ritual, but it's something that people do together, which has elements of ritual in, in it. Uh, and Pike saw lots of processing of ecological grief in demonstrations by the environmental activists for example so i think there's the task of sort of being open to them ritualistic elements in human behavior and they can be quite widespread and this could turn out into a very interesting discussion about various things in our lives which may count as having some kind of elements of ritual but then also the more explicit ones and lately i've been Working with Trepe Johnson, for example, the founder of Radical Joy for Hard Times Network, who is explicitly developing uh, communal activities which include uh, ritual elements like making a rat joy bird out of the elements you find, find somewhere. And The relationship with texts is fascinating. You know, there might be a text about ritual which then inspires people to do their own version of the ri- ritual also. So. This, this leads to a question of, of what do you think about texts, texts and ritual in this sense? Another very broad question. Yeah,
1: I think it's a great question. And I think maybe part of how I was also thinking about this was I also, in my Ecotopian Visions class, I teach um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future. And, you know, for listeners who don't know it, it's, it's you know, one of the great Ecotopian Visions of recent times. It sort of imagines how we get to... Um, how we actually sort of achieve uh something approaching sustainability mm-hmm. but it, it does so by sort of moving forward over a period of 50 years focusing on this un um this un group that it gets established called the ministry for the future that sort of has as its purview to sort of safeguard the future for all um humans and, and non-humans and then it's a fascinating book i don't want to give too many spoilers, but it's definitely worth checking out. It's kind of an imagination of like a climate revolution that takes place piecemeal, so that it doesn't sort of feel like an immediate revolution, but so the, the scale of the transformation is, is really that broad. But one of the interesting threads of the book is that at various points, uh, people talk about sort of needing a new religion. Um, and they never actually, it's kind of a red herring in the book, you know, it, it never actually happens. But it's this kind of regular thread um, and then at the end of the book sort of there's this kind of all-night dance party sort of celebrating um, everything that the world has achieved um, over the last 50 years or so. Uh, it's a little bit of a hokey chapter but um, but I think it sort of speaks to the need for need for celebration, the need for sort of collective um, acknowledgement of grief of loss when, you know one of the ways I sort of um, played with the idea of developing rituals in my in one of my classes was kind of, you know asking students to pick an emotion that they wanted to express, right? and then pick, okay, an action that would potentially express it, right? And then pick um you know, a group that would be doing the expressing and kind of do like a little, you know, uh, almost like a ritual randomizer. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And they came up with really fascinating things. You know one of them was mm-hmm. like, we want to express our climate rage, and so we're going to take all these unnecessary, you know, glass things and break them at the same time mm-hmm. um, and, you know, let loose a primal scream um, about the climate crisis. They didn't actually do this because this was happening in Singapore. They probably would have been um, gotten in some trouble if they had. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, you know, sort of rituals of, of. I think when we think about rituals in the environment, we may perhaps think of sort of, you know, traditional nature rituals and the harvest and these sorts of things. And those are obviously super important and, you know, rituals for, for extinction, for species that are being lost, for, you know, that kind of grieving, but also for joy and also for for anger, right? I mean, I, there's been a lot of research recently that, you know, Panu, I'm sure you've been following closely about just how important anger and rage can be as sort of predictors of, um, of actual engagement and activism compared to things like worry and, and fear, right? Which perhaps can be a little bit demotivating. And so I think, you know, rituals of anger We've, I think we've sort of, like, had this idea that anger is bad, right? Uh, we need anger management. People need to sort of tone down their anger. Maybe we need more rituals that can actually give people a forum through which they can express their, their righteous indignation about the forces that have taken us to the place we're in right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is beautiful. Uh, we're going to come, come to the end of our talk. Um, but listeners, you know, Taking this idea, you know, a ritual like like we've been talking about is it is a ceremony? It's an action that points to something that's usually invisible or something we're not we're not able to to grasp. Obviously, um, you know, I think you know the challenge that people face is that you know some of this feels like religion, and then it gets really taboo. And people have mixed feelings about religion, and they also don't feel qualified to be a religious leader, so they can't do a ritual, but that's not really what it is. A ritual, so I think when I've taught, I've really used art, I think people are more comfortable with artistic rituals, so using art as the, as the, as the venue to create the ritual, uh, I think is, is easier. So listeners, you can think about it, it's because it's a creative act, like it's a creative thing. And, and then yes, totally on point about different emotions, like that's another stopper because some people don't they feel like oh it's not okay to be happy. Some people say it's not okay to be sad. And so, you know, we have to give permission. It comes back to the very mission of our podcast. It's just we have to give permission to the feelings to occur and then we can do the rituals and things. so I, we could go on and on. Uh Pano and I are going to uh, sign up uh, as uh auditors for your courses, Matthew, <laughs> so we can uh, we can sit in on your courses. Uh <laughs> but we're going to we're going to wrap up, but um this is a great taste of matthew's work and we could easily have you come back again and keep going what are you both doing for the rest of your days uh how are we ending up here matthew what are you up to
1: i'm assuming you mean the rest of 2023 and not the rest of my life
0: um just the rest of no even just today i know you're a little ahead of me time wise yeah um I think-
1: it's nice and sort of rainy out here. I think I'm gonna walk in the rain. That seems like a nice ritual to sort of maybe appreciate some of the things that we tend to avoid.
2: Mm, yeah, yeah, sounds sounds great. Like an embodied connection to to the surroundings surroundings, which are also also in in us. Uh, it's been a great conversation, Matthew. Warm thanks also for, on my my behalf, and there would be a lot to talk about. Some creative finish. Finnish rituals or or the poetry book which comes from North America, Hard Times Require Furious Dancing. Mm -hmm. So so strongly resonating with this need for joy and celebration. And sometimes it can be combined with many emotional tones. Uh, It's Monday. We have the common sauna shift in our box of flats. So I'm going to do a Finnish ritual of going to the sauna pretty soon. Wow,
0: that's great both great rituals i'm just starting <laughs> my day here uh, i'm starting my day here and so i'm gonna gonna move on to working on my manuscript and then i have because it's the holidays here uh I have, some, I have some relatives coming into town to to visit so i'm gonna tidy my my home and make ready for my guests which is another kind of ritual that we do at this this time of the year so uh, listeners and matthew and panu everyone we wish you well The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.